Live from the Annex Wealth Management Studios, this is the Jeff Wagner Show. The AccuNet Mortgage Talk and Text Line is open now. Give us a call at 855-616-1620. And now, WTMJ's Jeff Wagner. Good afternoon, Wisconsin. Welcome to the show. So very glad to have you with us. Hope you had an absolutely outstanding weekend, and it was a pleasure to be out at the Wisconsin State Fair. I get to see so many people. It's one of my favorite events of the year and a good chance for us to interact. A lot of stuff coming up on the program today, so let us get right to it. All right. Um, several years ago, the Milwaukee Public School Board decided that we don't want police officers in our school. And they did it in response to complaints from some of those activists, you know, those people who tell us how we should behave, and some parents who complained that, well, when we have those school resource officers, when we have police that are stationed in the school, that means that too often the kids are arrested and, and given tickets. And what we should really do is allow the schools to discipline them. Now, I thought at the time that this was just a stupid, yes, that's the word I'm going to use, a stupid decision. First of all, because having police officers on the scene provides the opportunity for an immediate response. Now, it's not always going to stop a fight from breaking out, but but if you have cops on the scene— um, the, the response time, at least for that first police officer, is going to be shorter. Secondly, and I think this is one of the real advantages, having a, a school resource officer or a police officer on the scene helps, I'm going to use the word normalize the relationships. It allows, for example, high school students, it allows kids to see the police officers in, in a different light other than when they're being you know, arrested you know, or, or other than when the police are responding to, reacting to you know, a fight that's going on or a crime that's being committed. It gives the kids and the cops an opportunity to interact and, and see the kids in particular get a chance to see the police officers as, as human beings. And oh yeah, I, I, as opposed to this false narrative that gets portrayed by some people in the community that the police are evil and they're an occupying force, etc. Well, well, anyhow, um, what happened is the, police, the school board decided to pull officers out of the schools in 2016. Then after the George Floyd incident in Minneapolis, the school board voted in June to dissolve its contract for resource officers outside of school buildings as well. Okay, so the idea is we, we don't we don't want the police in the schools. We don't want the police anywhere near the schools because, uh, again, we don't want to traumatize the, the children. Well, like I said, what was the word I used earlier? Stupid. Well, interesting story that uh, the Badger Institute has been out. They went and they said, okay, how is this, how is this working out? How is this idea of pulling cops out of the schools and off the school grounds. How is how is this working out? And, and what's going on in the schools? Well, the numbers are in, and surprise follows surprise, they're not good. The Badger Institute um, did an open records request, something that you would have thought that maybe somebody else in the media would have done, and they requested calls for service data for the past year, school year, based on the high schools listed on the MPS website, Okay. Marshall High School officials, get this, made 140 calls for service. 
They were the most frequent caller. Washington, Madison, and Riverside University High Schools, 91, 90, and 89 calls, respectively. Bradley Tech, Vincent, Hamilton, Pulaski, and North Division each made between 71 and 80 calls, according to the data. All right, the high schools, so what are they reporting? Trouble with juvenile more than 250 times, well over once a school day, and that was by far the most frequent call for service in the past year. There were more than 100 reports of battery, most frequently at Vincent, Bradley Tech, Riverside, and Pulaski. There were 71 reports of a reckless vehicle, 39 reports of sexual assault, 39 of a subject with a gun, and 15 of shots fired. Nearly three-quarters of the 1,310 calls for service were disposed of by the filing of a report, the inability to locate a complainant, an advisory to school officials, or a report of assignment completed. Officers made 71 arrests based on the calls and issued 95 um, citations. Our number, 855-616-1620, which is the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. This was, at least in my opinion, a dumb idea in the first place to pull the cops out of the schools and then get rid of the school resource officers. But now we see just how dramatically dumb that idea was when you look at this enormous number of calls, 140 calls for service from Marshall High School, 91, 90, 89 calls respectively were next at Washington, Madison, Riverside University. Isn't it time to finally acknowledge that what we need is, first of all, from the safe, for the perspective of the safety of the kids and of the teachers and of the administrators, it makes sense to have a police presence on the schools. Secondly, to the extent that the thinking is, well, we don't want the kids to be intimidated, we don't want to feel like it's an armed camp, wouldn't you rather kids feel that they're safe instead? Isn't it time once and for all to put safety ahead of political correctness? 855-616-1620, we discuss in a moment. The coaches, the athletes, the volunteers, and of course the joy that comes with it all. That's what you get with Special Olympics Wisconsin. Join Vince Vitrano as he leads our next WTMJ Cares effort. On August 22nd, you can bid on items that benefit Special Olympics Wisconsin. Just text the word CARES, C-A-R-E-S, to the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line to get a link to the great items that will be available. WTMJ Cares is sponsored by Gruber Law Offices. One call, that's all. number of people are texting in and asking me to explain what what Mike Spaulding was reporting at the, at the stop of the newscast, that Northridge, which has now had four arson fires in the last three weeks, apparently there was a hearing today, and a judge has given the, the owners of the, the building until Friday to put in sprinkler systems and develop a security system and start repairing. It's stuff that they're never going to be able to do or suffer or start to pay $2,000 fines. And the rationale, the question is, what is the judge thinking? You know, they're, they're not going to do this. Why don't you just tear it down? And my answer is, I got to see the order. I don't know exactly what the judge is thinking, but we will revisit that as soon as more details emerge. Because the truth of the matter is, this company that owns Northridge has no interest in doing anything with it. They're not going to turn it into an Asian trademark. They're not going to spend $6 million to try to 
upgrade it. That's just not going to happen. They're going to just let it continue to deteriorate until finally that the city ends up tearing it down. And again, the question is going to be, are they then going to try to force the city to, to pay them off or something like that? Um, but once I know more about it, we'll discuss it in greater detail. What we're talking about right now is the latest numbers. And the Badger Institute has done a really, really really good job, I think, in in saying, okay, let's look at the reality. Because a few years ago, MPS came to the conclusion that, well, you know, we don't want those evil police officers in our schools. We don't want the kids to be intimidated by an occupying force. We, We don't want police officers there because, well, you know, we want to be able to discipline the kids ourselves, which, of course, is fine as far as it goes, but when you're not talking about a situation where some kid walks out of class and goes to the bathroom without a hall pass, when you're talking about a situation where some kid sexually assaults another child, that's kind of beyond the scope of the school officials. But the ever-so-politically-correct Milwaukee School Board decided we want those evil cops off the premises. They followed it up a couple years ago with the idea of let's get the school resource officers, let's get them off school premises as well because we don't want them there as well because don't you remember what happened to George Floyd. And predictably, it has been an absolute nightmare. The Badger Institute goes and says, what, what's exactly going on in the schools? And they look at MPS high schools and Marshall High School, this school year alone, 140 calls for service. Um, others, 80, 90 calls, um, trouble with juvenile 250 times, battery, Um, reckless vehicle, sexual assault, subject with a gun, shots fired. It's just that the violence that happens in the community in general is happening on a daily basis in the Milwaukee Public Schools. But because of the Milwaukee Public School Board and their idiotic decision to kowtow to some of the politically correct forces around here, you don't have cops in the schools to deal with this. Um, Jeff, um, I was an educator for 35 years. My experience with all the school police officers was positive. The police did their best to build positive relationships with the students and staff. It's John. He says it's good for everyone. Jeff, absolutely, the ousting of resource officers is part of the George Floyd effect, which only compounds the problem school faces, especially like in cities of Milwaukee. Absolutely. Jeff, I was a school resource officer at a Lake Country high school of 2,300 kids for the last 15 years of my career. From my perspective, and even of that of the students during the time I was there, you can't put a price on the safety it gave the student and the problems that never came to be because of the presence of law enforcement. You know, amen. You know, a- amen. What, what do we hear? What do we hear when we have, I don't know, shootings on on Water Street? What what do we hear? One of the things is we need more police. We we need a more active police presence to try to, you know, deter people from the gangs from shooting at each other or getting into fights. It's that whole idea. Well, if you need more police officers, you know, on the streets in areas where at least you've had examples of violence breaking out, why in God's green earth wouldn't you have more police officers in, in the schools? And I'm not talking about an occupying force, but obviously not having police officers in the schools isn't working at all. I mean, that's it. Jeff, the few loudest voices are drowning out the majority of people who just want to get an education and be safe. Well, that's that's it. This 
this idea that we don't want to have police on on the premises because, okay, somebody might feel intimidated or somebody's older brother or somebody's father just got out of prison after doing 10 years for whatever crime they committed, and they might have a hostility towards the police. That doesn't change the fact that, you know, Police are there to, number one, interact in a positive way with the kids, but number two, provide a degree of safety. Does it always, will that stop all the school fights? Will it stop all the school shootings? No. But doesn't it make sense to, I don't know, have a police officer stationed in a school like, for example, Marshall High School that found it necessary to make 140 calls for cops during the last um during the, the last school session, doesn't it make sense to have a cop right there? So, you know, maybe you can get some early intervention. So if you have a fight that breaks out, for example, maybe the police officer can help intervene, stop the fight before everybody calls their relatives and everybody descends. And instead of two kids duking it out in the cafeteria, you've then got 50 people that are involved in a, a fight or then guns are brought or whatever that is spread out to the parking lot. This is another one of these examples of political correctness run amok. Jeff, if a business had 80 calls, they would shut them down as a nuisance. What a good point that is. There are restaurants in high crime areas of the city where you have some aldermen who are trying to shut down the restaurants because People in the crowd, it's not a bad restaurant, but it's, okay, kids from a high school come over after school and they get in a fight in the parking lot and the cops have to respond. There are aldermen who are trying to shut down restaurants in certain areas of the city of Milwaukee because they've had too many police calls because, yeah, they've got armed security in there, but they can't control what goes on outside. You are exactly right. The texture is exactly right. If you had a restaurant that had 140 calls for service over the course of the last eight months or a bar or a convenience store or whatever, the, the, the city would be shutting them down. Instead, here, we're not issuing contracts to the police department. You can make a strong argument, and maybe this is a justification for shutting down these schools, which are, at least in some versions, unsafe to attend. Wouldn't they be safer if you had a situation where, it, where again, you had police that were close to the premises? I ask this question somewhat rhetorically, but for everybody who thought this was a good idea, and I don't think there were too many people outside some of the pointy-headed folks on the school board at the time who thought that this was going to be a good idea, the numbers are in courtesy of the Badger Institute, and they're not pretty. Hey, get that passport ready. WTMJ is sending you on a -a once-in-a-lifetime trip to see the green and gold play in London. You could qualify for this amazing trip to London, including airfare, hotel stay, transportation, and two tickets to the game at Tottenham Hotspur Stadium. Tune into Wisconsin's Morning News every day at 710 for your chance to win. It's the Great Britain giveaway only on 620 WTMJ. For official contest rules, visit WTMJ.com. The, um, you know, it's some of these stories, they're, they're just... They're just kind of mind-boggling when it comes to sort of the out-of-control violence that's there. If you haven't been following the story, an Appleton woman and two others were involved in in a drive-by shooting 
outside of Six Flags Great America in Gurnee, Illinois. The Appleton woman had a lower leg injury and was taken to a nearby hospital for a non-life-threatening injury. Here's what happened. About 8 p.m. Sunday, a white sedan drives up to the entrance to the park, and the suspects left the vehicle, fired shots, and then quickly left. The authorities say the shooting appears to be a targeted incident. uh, They did not leave the park. A 17-year-old male from Aurora, Illinois, suffered a thigh injury, was taken to a hospital. Third person with a shoulder injury declined to be taken to the hospital. Um, They say the investigation is still, the matter is still under investigation. But here's the bottom line. Okay, you're... It's a, a summer Sunday evening. You've got the theme park, which I assume is in the process of closing, and you've got a bunch of yahoos that, that pull up and execute the, essentially a drive-by shooting where they jump out and they start firing indiscriminately into a crowd of people that are leaving Great America. I guess we, we're getting to a point now where we say, when are we going to become outraged enough to recognize that what we are doing when it comes to handling crime it isn't just flat out is not enough? And what do you want to bet, once again, that when they catch the people that are responsible for this drive-by shooting outside of Six Flags Great America in Gurnee, what do you want to bet that all or most of the people involved, well, have been through the criminal justice system before, either as juveniles or as adults, and were probably slapped on the wrist on multiple occasions. Until we wake up and recognize that, you know, we've got repeat criminals that are out there with the impulse control of a fruit fly and no regard for the safety of anybody else, this stuff is going to continue to happen. And as I always say, whenever you have a shooting, it is it is in many cases just but for random luck or an act of God that that shooting doesn't turn into a homicide. This 19-year-old Appleton woman who was um, injured, you know, shot in the leg, well, that could have easily, you know, hit hit an artery. If, you know, that they aim a foot higher um, or the bullet lands a foot higher, you're talking about a completely and totally different situation. And now you can't walk out of a theme park without being afraid that you're going to be involved in a drive-by shooting. Okay, I'm trying not to have my head explode. It's it's only 30 minutes into the first show of the week, and I'm, so I'm I'm trying hard to resist this, and the more details will be emerging. But this this mess with Northridge, it it's just it it would be funny, except it is just so very tragic. To to review the the bidding, you know, Northridge Shopping Center was. If you grew up like I did on the North Shore of Milwaukee in the, the 80s, that was the place you went to hang out. I mean, it was it was a thriving enterprise. You had like restaurants, you had a movie theater, you had big, you had, you know, department stores that were serving as the anchors. You had all sorts of other shops as well. It, it's where you, you hung out. And then for a variety of reasons, the neighborhood changed. There was a perception and to an extent a reality that it was unsafe. Suburban women stopped shopping there as a result of that. What ended up happening is stores ended up leaving, and ultimately Northridge went into this death spiral, and I don't think there's been anything in there since, I don't know, the 2003, 2004, whatever it is. There's this this Chinese company, and they've got an American affiliate, but they're called Black Spruce, and what they do is they came along and they said, here's what we're going to do. We're going to take the Northridge Mall that we own, and what we're going to do is we're going to redevelop this, and we're going to put all this money in, we're going to turn this into this Asian trademark. Well, I don't know if it was a sincere plan in the beginning, but but they never executed it. And 
everybody around here, whether you're, I, I have a very, very close friend who made his entire livelihood by finding stores for shopping centers. That That's what he does. Or anybody in property development will tell you that, first of all, nobody is building large indoor shopping malls anymore. It's just not where, where, where business is. Secondly, Northridge, because it has been essentially allowed to deteriorate over the last two decades, it, it now, they estimate that to to get it up to a, a spot where you could actually start putting stores in there, you'd have to spend six, seven plus million dollars. And that estimate was before they had all these fires that, that they, they have had. So you're, you're talking about millions and millions of dollars that nobody in their right mind would ever in, invest in. So the city, recognizing that this is a, a it's an eyesore, it's a safety hazard, they tried to tear it down. They got an order, a raise, R-A-Z order, to, to tear it down and level it. You had two Milwaukee count, two uh, state court, circuit court, of state appellate court judges who guppied on this argument. The owners of the building that haven't put a dime for all intents and purposes into this for 20 years said, oh, no, 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 you, you can't tear it down. Because the city said, look, here's the way the law works. If, if it costs, if the value of the property is X, and to get the property back to, you know, something that could be functional, if that's like twice the value or more, well, we, we can tear it down. The The value of Northridge is, it's something in, incredibly low, a couple hundred thousand dollars. The To fix it would be like six million. So this company comes in and they say, no, 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 that the judge is interpreting this wrong. You shouldn't look at how much it would cost to turn it into a functioning mall. You should just look at how much it would cost to I don't know, turned it into a giant dilapidated building. It, it was a bizarre decision, and two appellate court judges guppied on that decision. And as a result, the city has been paralyzed, not able to do pretty much anything. Well, the matters have gotten worse because the owners of Northridge Mall, again, they have no intention of doing anything with it. And as we talked about last week, over the last three weeks, there have been four arson fires. Um, the one last week was they had like 29 different fire departments that were fire officers that were responding the one that had happened before that caused $200,000 worth of damage what what i'm being told is there's kids from the surrounding area that are are breaking in and they're setting the fires and they're running away that's I, at least that's what i'm being told is is the thinking of this we had the fire chief on on Thursday who um had a very very impassioned comments about how they they just they can't let it burn you know when they show up because that's, I think, what a lot of us would say. Just stop fighting this fire. Just control it. Let the damn thing burn down to the ground, and, and then let, let's move on. But as the fire chief said, well, first of all, we, we're, we're not allowed to do that. Secondly, whenever we come upon the scene of a fire, we especially one that's been set, you know, we have to go in. We have to see if there's anybody that might be in there, and we have to put the lives of the firefighters at risk. So against that, that whole backdrop, you've got the, this building that for all intents and purposes, it, nothing's ever going to happen to it. It needs to be torn down. So there was a hearing today about, again, the city renewing its requests to tear the thing down. Um, and apparently, here's what ended up happening today. A Milwaukee County judge, who's a little bit hamstrung, again, by the dumb decision issued by two appellate court judges that hasn't been reviewed by the Supreme Court yet, Milwaukee County judge has given the owners of Northridge Mall until the end of the day Friday to physically secure the property, clear it of debris, and install 24-7 security. Okay, 
They, they haven't put a dime into it for 20 years. So what are the chances that in the course of the next four or five days, they are, I mean, I have no idea what it would cost to physically secure the property, clear it of debris. Okay, it's, there's been four fires. Can you imagine what that undertaking would be and install 24-7 security? I, I just, off the top of my head, that in and of itself, even if you could do it, would probably I don't know, cost tens of thousands of dollars, probably more than that. I mean, I've seen some of the drone pictures of what's happened in Northridge. I, I just, I, I can't imagine how you could even do that over the space of four or five days. But the people that own it, they haven't put a dime into that building in the last two decades. So, okay, we, we think that they're going to do something over the course of the next week. Now, this isn't unreasonable. It's okay, you got to, because like anywhere, you know, if you've got a property that is a nuisance, if you've got a property that is a hazard, it's perfectly reasonable to do that. So, but here, here's the catch. The judge says you've got till the end of the day Friday to physically secure the property, not going to happen, clear it of debris, not going to happen, and install 24-7 security, not going to happen. So what what happens if they fail to do it? they could face a fine of $2,000 per day. Huh? I mean, $2,000 per day. Okay, you, you fine the company that hasn't put a dime into this over the course of the last 20 years. You, you fine them. I guess my comment would be good luck collecting on that fine, but it doesn't change the dynamic at all that, you know, they're, they're not going to invest hundreds of thousands of dollars or millions of dollars in trying to, to turn this around. So you can fine them and you can fine them and you can fine them, but it's not going to change anything. It's not going to improve the property at all. Apparently, they have now scheduled a new hearing on the raise order for, wait for it, October 3rd. So this is August 15th. So let's think this through. Two more weeks left in August. Then you've got all of September. So, I mean, this is this is essentially four, six, five, six, seven weeks away before you're going to have another hearing on, on a raise order. And yes, my guess is that there's no way that the owners are going to be able to comply with this order. And yes, the owners are going to get fined, and maybe you're going to be able to collect or not. But meanwhile, this property is going to sit and sit and sit and continue to be a target for arson, fires, and vandalism. It's going to continue to put lives of Milwaukee firefighters at risk when they have to go out and respond it to this. The, the bottom line is, People are just not viewing this, unfortunately, in the court system otherwise, as the priority that this needs to be. And again, to issue an order, physically secure the property, clear it of debris, install 24-7 security, give me a break. Those are my four words. Give me a break. You think the company's going to do that after 20 years? You think the company's going to suddenly say, okay, well, we're going to take $100,000 or $200,000, and we're going to hire a security firm, and we're going to bring in you know, the wrecking crews, and we're going to do this all in a week, and we're going to spend this money? It's not going to happen. And you can find them, and we'll see if you're ever able to collect a dime on that. Meanwhile, this eyesore, this blight, this safety hazard continues to sit on 76th and Brown Deer Road as we have one stalling tactic after another. Got to tear this down before somebody loses their life, whether it's one of the kids from the area who's having fun breaking into the place and setting fires who isn't able to get out in a timely fashion, or it's one of the firefighters who has to go in to try to secure the place when the building starts to collapse or something like that. I mean, this 
this is a hazard in the extreme. And it needs to get torn down like yesterday. And this news that, well, we're going to have another hearing on this on October 3rd, give me a break. That's another seven weeks that the people on the north side have to deal with this blight. The bad guys here, well, it's very clear. It's the people that own Northridge. And the fact that they've been able to manipulate the system and get away with this as long as they can is an absolute and complete travesty. And this continues to this day. Jeff, I have been calling Mayor Barrett on the Northridge building for years. He never returned any calls. This area is a disaster. I feel so bad for residents that live in that area. I know Menards has tried to take over some of the buildings, but Milwaukee leaders have denied that. Jeff, here's the other side of the coin. Um, Northridge, the owners of that building, they have, uh, nor have they paid the $800,000 in property taxes plus. So the argument is they're delinquent in in property taxes as well. Jeff, Northridge is routinely costing the city money by using resources, and they don't even pay the property taxes, $800,000 in arrears. Um, Yeah, that's it. And and by the way, the the city— Again, I, I come back, I fault two Wisconsin Court of Appeals judges who came up, who accepted this really, really bizarre theory, in my opinion, offered by the bad owners of this property. And yes, I say they are bad owners. You're behind in property taxes. You've got a building that has been decrepit for 20 years. And it's it's one of the greatest bait and switch things that you're going to see in city government around here in ages. Because every once in a while, when the pressure gets intense, they pull out these plans that they had. Oh, this is what the Asian trademark's going to be. And then they give them to the TV stations. And TV stations go out and they find, oh, what do you think of these trade these plans? Oh, this looks really great. Well, you know, that... Look, this is this is the reality in 2022 that that building is going to come down. I do not know what the end game is. Maybe it's to try to make yourself such a public nuisance that the city ends up giving you money for that property. I don't know what the ultimate thing is. But what they did today is just another one of these stalling tactics. And I applaud the judge saying, okay, you've got till Friday to clear out the debris and put in 24-7 security. But we know it's not going to happen. Friday afternoon's going to roll around. I don't think you could even do it. I, it would probably take you two months to start cleaning out that, that debris that you have after 20 years of neglect. Probably, you know, t- you know, two years and hundreds of thousands of dollars. And this company has shown no desire to do any of that. So you know it's not going to happen, which means at least until August, October 3rd. So for another seven weeks, people are going to have to live with that eyesore and the firefighters are going to have to respond the next time some kid breaks in and lights the thing on fire. Now, a a number of people, and I, I get this, I'm getting these texts saying, Jeff, if Northridge has another fire, here's one that's representative of it. I think it's too dangerous to aggressively attack the fire. The fire department should only protect adjacent structures. End of conversation. That was what, I again, I asked the fire chief when we had a chance to talk on Thursday, and he was very, very, I think, sympathetic to that. But he said, first of all, that's not in our DNA. I mean, our mission is to, you know, put out fires. And secondly, we we always do have an obligation to make sure that there's not somebody in these buildings. So we put our firefighters at risk. It's it's just a really bad situation. And again, I think it's caused by a really, really bad company that's figured out a way to manipulate the system. I don't know what the end game of this is, but I hope while the the company is 
exploiting you know whatever legal loopholes they can find. I hope somebody doesn't die because of this, and that's the very real possibility of what's out there. And it just it's amazing to me that this is going on and on as long as it could. And as I say, this started for me, and it's been a soapbox item for me. I freely admit it. It started for me just when I saw this this great thriving shopping center that, that I used to hang out at as a, as a teenager and as a young adult, and I, I just watched it deteriorate. So my, my initial beef has always been on an economic basis, that it's just it's just such an incredible loss to have what was this once thriving area and see it what it is now. But beyond that, now it's not just a matter of, gee, I'm sorry that we're losing the economics of this. I am legitimately concerned that somebody is going to die out there because this has been allowed to just simply deteriorate and deteriorate. And as near as I can figure out, the owner of the company doesn't give a rat's rump about that. Hey, coming up in less than 10 minutes, you be the lawyer and you be the jurors and tell me how this case, and I'll give you all the details about it, tell me how you think it should turn out. So we've got that coming up in just about 10 minutes. Did want to do a shout out. One of the things I did Saturday afternoon is I was at a, I, I was at an event. There's, it's actually my, let's see, I, I got to get this right. My brother-in-law, Kenny, his brother and his sister-in-law, um, they have They have what's called the Kent Grimshide Memorial Fund. Their their son passed away a few years ago, and what they have been doing is every year they have big events to raise money, which generates thousands and thousands and thousands of dollars, um, scholarship dollars for for kids in Pewaukee, and they have a golf outing and a raffle and things like that, and and I just had the, the best time. We try to attend every year, and we got to see, you know, Ray and Renee and just see all the different work that they put in. They, they just did just an absolutely outstanding job, and even though it was a little bit overcast on Saturday, 110 people played golf and lots more were, were there for the event and raised thousands and thousands of dollars. And it's always a pleasure to be there. I just, I'm always struck by how generous people in southeastern Wisconsin are when it comes to supporting worthwhile causes. And um, my wife, Fran, and I, we had a great time supporting this worthwhile cause on Saturday. All right, coming up, you be the lawyer, you be the juror. Don't go anywhere. Live from the Annex Wealth Management Studios, this is the Jeff Wagner Show. And now, WTMJ's Jeff Wagner. Good afternoon, Wisconsin. Welcome back. I want to tell you about a story. It caught my attention. This was front page in the Wall Street Journal on Saturday, and, and it got a lot of attention because in many people's minds, this demonstrates what is wrong with the legal system. And I, I want to kind of give you the, the facts of this and, and see how you come down on it. it. It's a story out of South Carolina, but it's a story that perhaps many people can relate to. And part of the reason it's getting attention is it involves some extremely wealthy families. It, it starts off... There's, it, it's a, a young man who, he's now passed away, not because of the accident I'm going to tell you, but he was 19 at, at the time. He was 19 in February of 2019 when he was driving a speedboat 
that plowed into a the moorings of a pier and killed one of the people who was with him. I mean, so that that's the story. It was a foggy night, etc. He was the child of a very, very prominent family in South Carolina. And the, the dad, who has now facing all sorts of criminal charges himself, was at one time one of these really like high-powered plaintiff's lawyers and things like that. So the on the other side of this case is a guy named Greg Parker. And if you have ever been to either Georgia or South Carolina, you might have seen these things. They're called Parker's Kitchen, and they're kind of like quick trips. He, he self-made guy who started off years and years and years and years ago buying a gas station, and he's now turned, he's, there's 71 of these across Georgia and South Carolina. And again, think, I mean, they're, they're convenience stores, but they're, they're sort of, I would describe as high-end convenience stores. So how how did these that this now somewhat disgraced but rich plaintiff's family how did did they end up in all this litigation and and what's going on? Well here here's what happens. February of 2019. What happens is this guy named Paul Murtaugh who's 19 years old. He's with his girlfriend and two other couples. So they're all, and in South, in South Carolina, the drinking age is 21. So they're all, they're, they're all underage at, at the time. So tw- 19-year-old Paul Murtaugh, this is um, in the afternoon, like late afternoon of, of February 23rd, 2019. What he says is, I'm going to go get booze for for us. It's the, these three couples, and their plan was they were going to spend the night at this this fishing cabin and things like that. So, 19 year old Paul has his has the driver's license for his 22 year old brother. So he's got his brother's driver's license, and apparently he's done this before. Brother has given him the driver's license to go buy booze. So, 19 year old kid with his brother's driver's license, brother's like three years older, goes into one of these Parker's Kitchen-type convenience stores. And they've got video um, footage showing him walking around the store, selecting his purchases, coming up to the checkout counter. Um, When he gets to the checkout counter, the clerk cards him, and he gives the clerk the, the driver's license belonging to his brother, who's three years older. And you see this all in video. The clerk looks at the license, looks at the kid, um, uses the scanner to verify that the license is valid, and then rings up the beer sale. All right. Uh, Beer, hard seltzer, gum, and cigarettes. Charges for $49. So then the 19-year-old walks out of the store, and this is showing up on video, and he kind of like holds the bags over his head in a gesture to his friends who are in, in the truck. Okay, so this is the afternoon of the 23rd. The six young people then meet at the grandfather's house around 6.30 p.m. They take a a boat to an oyster roast, which is a tradition in the South Carolina low country, at another home on the water. They stayed at that party for about four hours, and they were all drinking while underage. Okay, so that's what happens. Some of the stuff they are drinking is the beer that the kid bought at this convenience store a few hours earlier. Some might be other stuff that they had at the house. Okay, so they leave this second party that they've been at. It's after one o'clock in the morning, 
Um, apparently, on the way home, they stop in Beaufort, South Carolina, where a couple of them go into a bar. Now, again, they're 19 years old, and they have a couple rounds of shots. They get back into the boat. So it's now 2.20 in the morning. Follow me on this. And the boat they're driving, it's foggy. And what happens is the boat accelerates rapidly, slams into the pilings by this bridge, and which was on the way back to the cabin where they were all staying. Three of the passengers are thrown into the water, including a 19-year-old um, woman whose last name is Beach, is, is her name, Mallory Beach. Uh, they, they're able to get the other two out. Um, Mallory Beach is killed as a result of this. So you've got the story. They then check the kid who's driving the boat. He blows like a .28. I mean, so he's just blind drunk, you know, with this boat. Okay, tragic accident. Got the kid who's driving the boat in a drunken fashion, hits the pylons, throws one of his passengers, who's been part of this partying stuff, off of the boat. She ends up dying. Tragic situation. Why are we talking about this? Well, the family of the woman has sued the guy that owns the chain of grocery stores, the Parker's Kitchens. And the argument is you, your clerk, should have done a better job 12 hours earlier in screening the ID. She should have been able to figure out that the kid who was buying the booze was using his older brother's ID. Now, apparently, I think everybody would also agree that they're brothers. The older brother is a couple years older. They resemble each other. Okay, it's not necessarily a dead thing, but they're they're brothers and they're three years apart. It's not like the guy walks in and he's got the the idea of a of a forty two year old black man or Hispanic female. I mean, he's got his brother's idea. It's three years his brother's three years older. They resemble each other. The description doesn't quite match. He's like five ten. The brother's like five eight. Uh, the brother might be like one hundred and eighty pounds. He might be one hundred and sixty. But but they're in the general range. So anyhow. The family of the woman who's killed is now suing the owner of all these chain stores, saying it's your fault or you should be held responsible. And the way the law works in South Carolina, it's a really, really weird law that says that if, if, you, if there is an alcohol-related death and you are in any way, shape, or form responsible, it could only be 1%, you could also be held liable for all the damages. So this is now that this huge fight, they're going after the owner of this Parker's Kitchens because, again, the argument is the clerk sold the beer to the kid who presented the false ID 12 hours earlier. Our number is 855-616-1620. That's the Accident Mortgage Talk and Text Line. I think this is a pretty fair and objective recounting of what happened. So my question to you is, you, you be the judge, you be the jurors in this case. All right, the clerk, the store, the convenience store that sold the underage kid using his brother's fake ID some beer 12 hours earlier— and he went to subsequent parties, I mean, multiple parties, and he drank at other places. All right, should, should that store be held liable for what happened, you know, 
uh, 12 hours later when the kid is drunk and plows into bridge pilings and ends up killing one of the people who's with him. 855-616-1620. I'll tell you where I come down on this, and we'll discuss in just a minute. You be the lawyer. You be the jury. You be the judge. You tell me how should this turn out. Eight five five six one six one six twenty, which is the Accurate Mortgage Talk and Text Line. Now, this case is getting a lot of attention because the in, in normal cases, maybe it would just be settled or something. But the guy that owns all these convenience stores, these seventy one convenience stores, kind of I get the idea, he's sort of a crotchety guy who says, "Look, I'm not going to be I'm not going to be taken to the cleaners by the, these type of claims." My my people, we did nothing wrong. You come into a, a store. You, you know, present a, a fake ID that could easily be, you know, uh, again, where you resemble the person there. We checked it. We determined it was a valid license. He walks off with some beer. And the fact that 12 hours later, the kid is blind drunk. And we don't know that he got blind drunk on the beer that he bought here because he stopped at a whole bunch of other places. And now you want to shake me down for, for part of the settlement. No, I'm not responsible. And so he's fighting it. What do you think? Let's start with Bob in Greenfield. Bob, you're on WTMJ. Hey Jeff, um, I, I would find uh, for the uh, defendant because, like you said, um, you know it's a real driver's license, and she scanned it. It's an authentic driver's license, and the kid resembled the driver's license. And obviously, if you looked at twenty people's driver's license, you'd probably find ten or twelve that didn't quite look like the picture, perhaps. And then you've got the fact that they drank at three different locations. Uh, the bar, um, yeah. the party, uh, I don't know if they were drinking at the clam bake, but obviously those are all issues. And I, I think the person most that would be considered most guilty would be his brother for uh, giving him right. a valid driver's license, which he was able to scan, and yeah. knowing that I'm sure they knew that they looked similar to each yeah. other, and that was that's why they did it. Sure, that's why they did. You're right. That the money. Right. You know. Right. Exactly. No. Thanks. Okay. I guess that's kind of how I. This is the type of thing that just it, it's and and because again, South Carolina has this weird law that says that even if you're just a tiny percent liable, you you know you might they might be able to recover the whole amount from you. What what about again when you when you talk about responsibility? What about the girl? Who and and you know you hate to make this argument, but what about the girl who was along with him? I mean, you know, the girl who ended up getting killed—that's unfortunate. But she was partying there. She was one of the ones celebrating that. Hey, that we, we, we've we've scored this underage liquor and stuff like that. You know, she's riding around with a boat with the guy who's blind drunk. But yeah, you, you look. I mean, first of all, it starts with the kid who got himself you know blind drunk in this situation. Then, of course, I, I think you have the brother who provided him with the fake ID. But what's a clerk to do? This is part of. To me, it's part of the problem where you have this war on on these businesses, and they're saying, "Well, you know, they, they should have checked it more." Well, okay. At what point in time you you give somebody an ID? You're the clerk. You got five or six people that are waiting to check out. You look up. Well, okay. Can you tell really the difference between somebody who's 19 and 22? Again, they resemble each other. They're, that's why there's the family relationship that was there. I mean, again, if the kid was, if the kid was like trying to give an ID that said he was a 52 year old woman, all right, maybe you could say, well, they, they should be, you know, maybe they should be scrutinizing this more. But you look at the picture. Okay, well, you know, I back. 
back when I, well, my brother and I are seven years apart, but I, I would think that, you know, many of you think about your siblings. My guess is if you have a sibling that's a year or two apart, there is there is a resemblance in many sort of cases to the point that, you know, a, a clerk at a convenience store who's at least going through the motions of checking and making sure that this thing is valid, it's not like they didn't card them, but now they're saying they didn't card them good enough? Let's talk to Mike in Illinois. Mike, you're on WTMJ. Good afternoon. Good afternoon, Jeff. How are you? Good. What do you think? I'm I'm glad that this uh, owner of those uh, stores is, is fighting it because he is not responsible. I'm, you know, the to me the clerk did her due diligence. Um, you know, took a picture, scanned it, saw that it was valid. I mean, as I told you earlier, not that I'm proud of it, but I used to use my older brother's ID. It's a valid ID, but me and my brother look alike, so I was yeah. able to get away with it. How, how, Mike, how, how, much older, happened, how much older is your brother than you? He's two years older. Yeah, so same, same sort of thing. You know, this, this case, the, yeah. he, the kid was, tw- was 19, the other one was 22. Yeah, you resembled each other. It's not like you were twins, but you had that familial um, resemblance. Exactly. And the other thing, and the other caller alluded to this, but are they going after... Um, you know, the bar, are they going after the party, the, oh, the parents of, you know, the house of the party they were at? I mean, or are they just going after this guy because he's got deep pockets? I don't know how sensitive to the family, but to me, it kind of sounds like it's not all about, you know, trying to get justice. It sounds like it might be a little more than that. No, thank you. I know. I think you're right. It, it's purely a cash grab. They All the story says is they've settled with everybody else that, that's involved, but now because... Because the owner of the stores refuses to to be extorted and, and pay out money. Now, I mean, and again, South Carolina has this weird law that says even if you're just a little teeny tiny bit, even if you're like 1% responsible, that, that you, if it's an alcohol-related death, you can recover. And he's actually saying, okay, th- this law is crazy. Because the, the law is crazy. I, I mean, I, I look, if, if this was a situation where, you, again, you had the clerk that— didn't ID the, the people or didn't check them. And you had some very clear evidence. By the way, that's the other conflicting thing here. You don't know. I mean, the, the kid is is blind drunk. The 19-year-old, he's like 0.28. Okay, I understand that. But you don't know that that's necessarily based on the 12-pack of beer and the wine spritzers. We, we know he was drinking shots of other stuff. I mean, it's not like you can even causally say, okay, you've got six kids, that they get a 12-pack of beer, they each drink two. That's, that's not getting you that drunk. That's just flat out not getting you that drunk. The accident occurs hours and hours and hours and hours and hours after the, this purchase. I guess I, I that's kind of my take on this as well. And I, I think I appreciate that, you know, we all want to be responsible. But this is like a classic example to me of how we try to shift responsibility from where that responsibility belongs. And I don't know how this is going to ultimately turn out. But, you know, the guy who's fighting this, I say, you know, you're you're on the side of the angels in this particular case. It's unfortunate that somebody's dead, but you know, unless we are going to allow businesses just to become target after target after target when they try to do the right thing, well, all right, that that's what's happening in this particular case. Are you a fan of Better Call Saul? Oh, yes. Tonight, yeah. final episode. <laughs> yeah. the, the for people who might not be familiar, Better Call Saul is was a Saul was a character that was introduced during the run of Breaking Bad mm-hmm. and got his own spin-off series that's been going on for six years. And tonight is the final episode, the 63rd episode. Breaking Bad ran 62. So <laughs> that entire 
Breaking Bad universe kind of comes to an end. Plus, you had the one movie. It kind of comes to an end today. Yeah, it's been like, you know, a decade in the making, you know, all this kind of leading to tonight. And they've it it was like what a a prequel to the Breaking Bad series. But now it's almost sort of eclipsed that as you get towards the end. So it's uh, there's a lot of storylines mixed in. I'm excited. No, it is. It is kind of interesting. And of course, the the two stars of um, Breaking Bad, they they brought back for cameos, um, including Aaron Paul, who played Jesse. And and at the time he he played, when he started out, he was like in his early, in his mid-20s. Now he's like 40. So they brought him back, and it's the the CGI and stuff. It's like he's now 42, and he looks completely different than he did when he was like in his 20s and stuff. But they're they're trying, he's trying to reprise that role from back then. But yeah, it's, I I think the, the first half of this season has been outstanding. I think the last few of not been as good, but that's just me. But I'm, I'm going to be watching tonight at eight o'clock. I'm uh, I'm I'm working here until nine, so I have to uh, I have to do the avoid Twitter, you know, kind of stay offline until you get home, put the blinders on. But I'll be I'll be watching, I'll be logging on when I get home and watching. It is kind of the end of an era, and and one of the things is that I mean they've set the, the thing is set in Albuquerque, and they've really kind of put Albuquerque on the map because they have all these Breaking Bad tours and they, where they take you to where the houses are, <laughs> and this is where this was shot, and this is where that was shot, and stuff. So if you're ever in Albuquerque, which there's a reason why they set let me see, how can I say this? I'm just going to go ahead and say, there is a reason why they set a TV show about meth dealers in in Albuquerque Mm -hmm. because if you've ever been to Albuquerque... Well, there's a reason why they set Breaking Bad there, but it's but it it has. If you're ever in Albuquerque, you want to take the Breaking Bad tour. Were you surprised that they gave them those statues that they eventually did? I mean, I know they were put Albuquerque on the map, but they were still like drug dealers in the show, and now they have these statues of them in downtown Albuquerque. I was like, "Mm, I don't don't know about that. Well, we've got a Fonzie statue on the river, (laughs) so you know what 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 can you do? It it brings it in. But anyways, Alex and I will be watching Breaking Bad. I will be watching it at eight o'clock as it occurs. Alex will be watching it on VCR or whatever, but it, it, just a quick reminder, if you are a fan of Better Call Saul and Breaking Bad, it all kind of wraps up, and I don't think anybody exactly knows how it's going to turn out, except, generally speaking, people get what they deserve in that show. <laughs> I, I think that's kind of, you know, people sort of get what they, they deserve, and my guess is that's how it's going to probably end. I was going to say, that's how you think it might end. I think he might still uh, might still get away. I don't know. He's been getting away for the entire 10 years now, so we'll see what happens. I, You know, <clears throat> yeah. <laughs> well, I, I, I don't know. So that's it. But I, in general, I, I think that I think that people get what they deserve. That's sort of been the upshot of that. But I, again, who who knows? We'll compare notes tomorrow. It is it is kind of cool getting everyone back around the live TV, like talking about it again in the era of streaming. You know what I mean? Where it's going to oh. be a live one tonight. Everyone's still talking about it. it uh, it's pretty cool. Well, yeah, you know, and, and that's actually a very good point. It's, it's one of the reasons why TV is trying to figure out, for example, how to price advertising and things like that because nowadays – very, very few people watch stuff in in real time, with the exception of sports. You know, live sports. Yeah, yes, you you can you can tape the Brewers game, you can tape the Packers game, but but people generally don't do that. I mean, you want to watch the stuff as it's going on. But with the exception of live sports, many, 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 many people just time shift stuff. You you record it, or you you know you stream it later on, or whatever, and you can skip the commercials, which <laughs> is always the the battle that that you end up having. Yeah. Yeah, but, it'll, it'll, be, it'll be interesting to see what happens tonight. But I think when we see the numbers, there'll be a fair amount of people that uh, end up tuning in live to see this Breaking Bad world kind of come to a close. Okay, so you think he's going to get away at the end of the day? I do. Yeah, I do. <laughs> okay, I, I'm, I, and I'm voting for accountability. We will compare notes tomorrow, but neither one of it. It's just it, it's just a guess. Hey, when we come back, first of all, you never want to hear yourself described in this fashion, and then. All right. Is there really a free lunch and should there be? Stick around. 
All right. Now, this is a test. My producer, Charlie, is testing me, wondering if I will be able to pick up why we are playing that particular bump. And the answer is yes, I know, because... At the end of the Breaking Bad TV show, that was the final song that played over the, if not the closing credits, played over the, the final scene where um, the Walter White character is in another glorified meth lab and ends up dying. I hope I didn't give anything away, but if it's been off the air for years and years. If you don't know he dies at the end of it, I can't help you with that. But yeah, that was the, uh, the, the Baby Blue song that was out there. So yeah, Breaking Bad and Better Call Saul kind of comes to an end. All right, I, I wanted to double back on something that, that Alex mentioned during his top of the hour newscast because this is going to get a, a ton of attention a little bit later on. Rudy Giuliani, who somewhere along the way lost his mind. I, I just, if you're a regular listener to the program, I, I, I knew Rudy Giuliani back in the day. I mean, I was in the U.S. Attorney's Office in Milwaukee. He was the U.S. Attorney for the Southern District of, of New York. He was, he was the boss. And, and he was kind of legendary. I mean, he was always viewed as kind of a, I don't know, a, a, a self-promoter. But they, were, they did these very, very aggressive prosecutions, and they used the racketeering statute to go after mobsters and criminals. And he was extremely well-regarded. And, and he, I mean, I can remember, I mean, I can go, remember going to seminars where he was talking about RICO, the racketeering law, and stuff like that, and how you would use that against drug dealers and things like that. And it was he, he was an aggressive, hard-charging prosecutor who used that to, to, to run for the mayor of New York. And he became the mayor of New York, and he, I think, deserves a lot of credit for, for cleaning up New York. Now, New York has kind of deteriorated since the Rudy Giuliani days. But remember, back in then there was 9-11. He was kind of America's mayor. And then somewhere along the line, he, he just— kind of lost his mind. And and maybe it was this desire for money where, you know, he just had all these kind of questionable clients. And maybe it was this thirst for fame that he decided to, you know, get involved with, with Donald Trump in the weirdest sort of fashions and things like that. But but in any event, Rudy Giuliani, in my opinion, and again, I don't I don't care where you are on the whole stolen election thing and whether you're a fan of Trump or not a fan of Trump, Rudy Giuliani, it just seems like he's lost his mind. And he, he decided to affiliate himself with the the, the crazy fringe of the, the election was stolen thing. And not not just the, oh, do we need to look at a, election irregularities, but just it seemed like like every every crazy theory that was down the, the pike, Giuliani was, was embracing that. Well, in, in any event, things haven't gone well since Trump's departure either. And the news today is that Rudy Giuliani has been confirmed as a target of a Fulton, this is Georgia, county criminal investigation into election interference. There's apparently a grand jury in Georgia that is investigating post-election efforts to try to overturn the results. A lot of this probably stems back to that phone call that uh, then-President Trump you know, made saying, find me 13,000 votes or whatever it is, and then I'll do the rest. It, it is significant because— the news today is that the prosecutors have confirmed that Giuliani is a target of the investigation. Now, let me just give you some insight. There, there are different terms that prosecutors use that have different meanings. For example, 
a lot of times if you issue a grand jury subpoena, it, it you might the person who is being subpoenaed might have absolutely nothing at all to do with the 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 facts of the investigation. You know, I, I'm I'm looking for your bank records, so I issue a subpoena to the the bank to produce those records. Well, okay, that the bank is not involved in any way, shape, or form with the criminal investigation. So there's that. There's what they call subjects. Sometimes you can issue a letter to somebody saying you are a subject of the investigation. That means a grand jury is investigating you as somebody who is potentially involved in, in you know, suspicious, illegal, what, whatever behavior. You're a subject of it. Some of your conduct is going to be looked at, but you are if there's nothing more than that. And then there's what's called a target letter. And I will just give you some free legal advice from a recovering attorney and a recovering federal prosecutor. Just like you never want to pick up the newspaper and see your or listen to the radio news and hear your name and the word indicted in the same sentence, never a good thing. You similarly don't want to hear that you are a target of a grand jury investigation because that is a very specific term, Um, a target is a person, and this is the way it's generally understood. Now, maybe some prosecutors treat it differently, but as a general rule, when you tell somebody that they are a target, that means that there you are somebody that the prosecutor or the grand jury has substantial evidence that links you to the commission of a crime and who, in the judgment of the prosecutor, is very likely to be charged. So when you get a target letter, that's why these are terms of art in the prosecutorial committee community. When you get a letter saying that you are a target of a grand jury investigation, that means they think they have you. Now, you should say, okay, why, why do you tell somebody that they are a target of an investigation. Well, it's all because of of potential Fifth Amendment implications. Now, technically, like Miranda, you know, you have the right to remain silent, et cetera, et cetera. It doesn't apply unless you're actually in custody. But as a general practice, if somebody is, I don't know, if if I as a prosecutor believe there's probable cause to indict somebody— um, and, and I bring them in front of the grand jury, even though they're technically not in custody. They've gotten a subpoena that requires them to appear. As a general rule, you will advise them of their rights um, because you don't want to get into an argument later on about whether or not the statements they made were voluntary or things like that. So by telling somebody that they're a target, you alert them that, hey, you know, if we're whistling you in front of the grand jury, you might want to think about exercising your Fifth Amendment rights because we believe we have evidence that indicates that you have committed a crime. So that's kind of a detailed explanation. But when, when you hear somebody is being identified as a target, that's like red flags going off because typically you would not tell somebody that they are tar- a target of an investigation unless you believed that you were on the verge of returning an indictment. Doesn't mean you're going to automatically always do that, but being identified as a target, well, it's never, never, ever a good thing. 
High inflation, recession threats, and a parade of bad news. It's enough to make you lose sleep. Well, it's no secret. Many Americans are worried about the state of the economy. Join Dave Spano from Annex Wealth Management along with WTMJ's John McCure for Navigating the Markets, a special webinar presentation on Wednesday, August 24th at 11 a.m. It's a one-hour, 30,000-foot view of current market trends with a discussion of what to expect for the rest of the year. Sign up at WTMJ.com, navigating the markets from Annex Wealth Management and 620 WTMJ. All right, over the weekend, you might have lost this in all the news that's going on about the search at Mar-a-Lago. And, and, and by the way, we talked about it a little bit last week. We, we will talk about it more, but until the Justice Department releases the search warrant affidavit, and I, I thought Merrick Garland, the attorney general, was— very, you can use the word clever, you can use the word sly, you can use the word sneaky, where he said, we want to be transparent, we want to re- we're going to release the search warrant. Well, they released the cover sheet, which is the search warrant, and they released what was seized. But until they release the search warrant affidavit, which is the document that establishes the probable cause, there's no way that anybody can fairly evaluate whether there was urgency and whether there was a need to execute a search warrant, whether this was overkill, whether it was political or not. You really can't fairly make that judgment until they release the search warrant affidavit. And I think Garland was very, very, he played very, very fast and loose with terms, recognizing that a lot of people wouldn't know that when you say, I'm going to release the search warrant, that means that you're not also releasing the underlying documents. But until that search warrant affidavit is made public, it's almost impossible to evaluate whether or not this was an overreaction to suddenly have to use a search warrant to get documents that have been in the possession of Donald Trump for the last 18 months, or whether this was justified. So as more details about that emerge, you know, we'll offer some comments on it. But one of the other things that was confirmed over the weekend that I, I appreciate why Biden feels pressured to do this, but I again say it's completely and totally the wrong move. Russia has now confirmed that the United States has gone essentially hat in hand begging for the ability to what they'll they're willing to do is they're willing to take this convicted Russians Russian arms trafficker this Viktor Boot who was described as the merchant of death who was caught and convicted of sell, trying to sell $20 million worth of like surface-to-air missiles to shoot down American planes. He was caught and convicted, and he's serving a 25-year sentence. Joe Biden, under incredible pressure from the left, has apparently agreed to trade this convicted arms dealer his release for the release of WNBA athlete Whitney Griner. She's the one who made the inexplicable decision to go to Russia about a week before the Ukrainian invasion because she wanted to make some money playing for a basketball team in Russia, and she was dumb enough to bring hashish oil, a very, very small quantity, in with her. In a sane world, what would have happened is they would have caught her, they would have fined her, and they would have kicked her out of the country. But of course, we don't live in a a sane world. We live in a world where Russia has invaded Ukraine, and Russia sees the opportunity to take this woman who has committed 
a, a minor, minor, minor offense who's now been short, convicted and sentenced to nine and a half years in prison. And they're holding her essentially as a political hostage, her and another guy that's been there for a couple years. And the deal is we want this convicted arms trafficker. We want him back. And if you want if you want the basketball player back, you got to give us the arms dealer. Biden is under incredible pressure to do this from from the left, free Brittany, free Brittany, free Brittany. My point is, I think this would be an incredibly disastrous decision. Not that I am not unsympathetic to this woman, who I believe is being held as essentially a political hostage, but I, you just can't appease terrorists. That That's the bottom line. And if you make this deal, I think you make every American traveling in Eastern Europe subject to being grabbed and used as a hostage and to, you know, turn to force the release of other people. These aren't like, hey, we're exchanging spy versus spy in the Cold War or something like that. This isn't like, hey, we're exchanging soldier versus soldier. This is we've got a convicted arms dealer, the merchant of death, and we've got a, a basketball player who had a little bit of hash oil, and we're demanding the release of the merchant of death. I think the government needs to work to try to get her out and use whatever pressure that you can on the Soviet on, on Russia to do that but to turn loose an arms dealer i think puts everybody else at risk and to do it because it's the politically correct thing to do is even less of a reason to do that okay when we come back is there a free lunch and get on the bus i'll explain we'll discuss live from the annex wealth management studios this is the jeff wagner show and now wtmj's jeff wagner good afternoon wisconsin welcome back to the show hey if you follow me on twitter it's at jeff wagner 620 couple new postings since we spoke last uh, monkeypox did you know that in 2022 we cannot call monkeypox monkeypox anymore The World Health Organization has said we can't call it monkeypox because, well, someone somewhere may somehow take offense. So now we have to figure out something else to call monkeypox. My question is, what's next to go? Can we no longer have chickenpox? I mean, if you're offended by monkeypox, what about chickenpox? What about swine flu? We can't call it swine flu anymore because, I don't know, somebody might be offended if there's the implication that they have this and they are a swine. What about charley horses? Have we ended charley horses nowadays because, well, I don't know, people named Charlie might be offended by being linked to horses. Horses might be offended by being called Charlie. I don't know, but I've got a link to the story. It, It just shows how ridiculous it has become that because somebody somewhere may somehow take offense, we cannot do this. Also, just sent something new out, and I'm, we're going to be spending a lot of time as over the course of the next you know couple months as we lead up to the early November elections. And as I've said before, there are very, very clear choices that are there. I would argue that the decision between Mandela Barnes and Senator Ron Johnson, it's probably, you probably have two candidates that are the most diametrically opposed as anywhere in the country. Ron Johnson, a solid conservative, Mandela Barnes, who to the extent he has an ideology. He's as close to being a socialist as I think you're going to find. But the story in the paper, the headline says, Mandela Barnes says Ron Johnson says wacky stuff. That's the thing. Well, I'm going to be posting a couple tweets based on this, but the first one, Mandela Barnes says Ron Johnson says wacky stuff. Part one. Last time I checked, it was Mandela Barnes who was saying that we should abolish ICE, the Immigration Service, 
eliminate cash bail. He still believes that we should eliminate cash bail. My God, has the guy no concept of what is going on in this country when it comes to crime and pushing to defund the police? Now, I would argue when it comes to saying wacky stuff, abolishing ICE, eliminating cash bail and defunding the police, that is wacky. And if you want to see that tweet, you can follow me. It's at Jeff Wagner 620. Um, There will be additional wacky things that Mandela Barnes is saying, and we'll be talking about that over time. All right. My position on this might be controversial. That doesn't mean that I am not right. The, I guess I, I've always had this sort of naive belief that parents should have some responsibilities when it comes to their children, including that if you make the decision to have children and you are financially able to do so, you bear the burden of feeding and clothing those those children. I, and maybe this is this, this novel concept, because I understand there are people out there who think that from the cradle to the grave, it is the government that should take care of everybody, but I don't happen to be one of them. Well, in 2019, um, as, and then as, as the pandemic was starting to, to hit take over, what you had is you had this program in, I guess it was actually fiscal 2020, because of COVID, the Department of Agriculture suspended eligibility requirements for free and reduced price meal applications. And regardless of income, every student, every student in the country became entitled to a free breakfast and lunch, regardless of family income. So it doesn't make any difference whether, you know, you come from a family where the, the joint income is $30,000 and you're below the poverty line, or whether you're making $350,000 a year in your family, the taxpayers were going to pick up the, the tab for the kids' lunch. That was extended for another year into fiscal 2021. That money is finally running out. And as at least as it stands thus far, it has not been renewed. So here's the deal. Students from households with incomes at or below 130% of the federal poverty line are eligible for free lunches. Students whose families are between 130% and 185% of the poverty line are eligible for a reduced price lunch. So what does that mean in the real world? A family of four qualifies for reduced price lunches this year in almost every state if their annual income is $51,338 or below. A reduced price meal means you can get breakfast for $0.30, you can get lunch for $0.40. All right? So essentially, if your family, a family of four, $51,000 or less— The taxpayers subsidize your children's lunches to the point of either you get them for free or you get them for 70 cents a day, two meals, 51,000 or more. If you make more than $51,000, well, you've got a couple choices. You have to pack your kids lunch or you have to have your kids buy lunch. And um, it, it varies from school to school, but kind of on, on average, school lunch costs between like 250 and 3 bucks. That, that's, 
That's kind of the the bottom line of this. It, it might vary from time to time. Well, there's a story in the Wall Street Journal that caught my attention. And I'm, it, it is is all these people. Here, for example, here is the vice president of advocacy at the National Parent Teacher Association. The expiration of the federal universal free lunch program might force some families to choose between paying their bills amid high inflation or buying breakfast or lunch for their children. The expiration of the federal universal free lunch program might force some families to choose between paying their bills amid high inflation or or breakfast and lunch for their children. Okay, I'm sorry, but if your family of four pulling down, let's say, 60 grand a year, I don't think it is unreasonable to say that, okay, you should pack your own kids' lunches. Or, you know, you, you can spend $3, you know, to have your kid get that, the hot meal. That This idea that the taxpayers have to pay for every kid to have a lunch or a breakfast, I think, is ridiculous. And I don't have a problem with the, ha- with the reduced price lunches for people who qualify. I don't have a problem with the free breakfast and lunches for people who qualify. But this idea that, well, we should just give everybody everything, regardless of income, and in how dare we even ask those questions, 855-616-1620, I'm sorry, I don't buy it. Is it unreasonable to expect... I don't know, a family that's pulling in a hundred grand to either send their kids to school with a bag lunch or to send their kids to school with two fifty or three bucks or whatever it is to buy the hot lunch. Is that unreasonable? Eight five five six one six one six twenty, we discuss. Eight five five six one six one six twenty, which is the Accident Mortgage Talk and Text Line. I where did we get this see and this is the problem that you have sometimes with, with entitlements. And that is the idea that once once we give something, even if there was a specific reason for giving it, despite the fact that that, that reason has, has disappeared, we still have to keep giving it. And the school lunch program is the classic example of that. I have no problem with free student lunches for kids who live in poverty or the way it stands within 130% of the poverty line. No problem at all. I have no problem with almost free lunches for kids who live in that 130 to 185% of the poverty line. So what that means on average is if you are a family of four earning somewhere under, just a little bit under 52 grand, you get lunches for 40 cents, you get... Um, uh, you get breakfast for thirty cents. So for seventy cents a day, the taxpayers are going to feed your kids breakfast and lunch. You don't have to worry about getting up and giving them cereal and making them breakfast. You don't have to worry about getting up and making them a turkey sandwich and some French fries and some potato chips and an apple and sending them there. The taxpayers will pick that up, and that's okay. But when did this expectation? be that we will pay for everybody's kids to have lunch regardless or breakfast at taxpayer expense regardless of what their income levels are. I mean seriously, if you've got a dad and a mom who are both working who are making 75 grand a year or 100 grand a year or 200 grand a year or whatever, why should the taxpayers be picking up the tab for their kids to have a free lunch? I mean, is it too much to expect to say you send Junior you know, to school with the $3? Or, heaven forbid, you do what you know my mom did for a number of years, and then once I got old enough, I was supposed to do, which is you make your sandwich and you take your bag lunch and you have your uh, cup of soda or juice 
or whatever. 855-616-1620. That is the Acunet Mortgage Talk and text line. Jeff, I don't understand what you're objecting to, assisting families making 60000 per year or 100000 per year. I don't understand what you don't understand. How could I be more clear on this? I object to giving families who do not otherwise need it, who can afford it, giving them a handout and saying we're going to expect the taxpayers to pick up the tab for your kid's lunch. Is it too much to expect you to take care of your own children when you have the financial wherewithal to do it? Why is it that everybody else is supposed to pay for a free lunch for your kid? Don't don't you have any sense of responsibility at all? And by the way, I I guess I don't fault people for taking advantage of the the free food if the taxpayers are going to give it to you. But don't we have some sort of limitations, or shouldn't we? Craig, you're on WTMJ. Good afternoon. Hi, Jeff. I'm really glad to see somebody address this topic because it's just driving me crazy. Uh, my wife and I had four children. We were not particularly well off. I, I had a decent job. But I'll tell you this, I mean, we would have both gone hungry every single day as opposed to letting our children go hungry. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you right, you viewed that as your responsibility that before you sent your kids off to breakfast, somebody, to school, somebody was going to get up and, and make them a breakfast and they, they were going to have their lunch, maybe a bag lunch, whatever. But you took that on as your responsibility. No, you're exactly right. I don't know why more people don't feel that way. Yeah, I, well, thanks. For, they don't feel that way because I mean, thanks to call because there's there's a free lunch, and and I guess whenever we have these conversations, it's well, oh, don't you care about poor people? No, that's not what this is all about. That this isn't about free lunches for poor kids. This isn't about almost free lunches for. You know, people whose families, in this case, that's what the numbers are. Fifty-one grand a year, you get, you can get lunch and breakfast for about seventy cents a day. Okay, that that's fine. But I, I do raise this question about uh, otherwise. At some point in time, when did when did it become the responsibility of government to? For parents who have the means and the ability to do so, it becomes the responsibility of government. And by when we say government, let's understand, we mean the taxpayers. When did it become the responsibility of the taxpayers to provide lunches and breakfasts for kids whose parents have the means and the ability to do it? I mean, that's is is this a nice thing? Well, yeah, I guess it's a nice thing. You don't have to worry about getting up and and you know putting out a bowl of cereal or making making you know eggs or something for the kids. So yeah, you can sleep in longer. Yeah, you don't have to go through the hassle of going to the grocery store and buying your know, turkey or ham and some cheese and you know having you know either making the kids a sandwich or having you know your your kids make the sandwich themselves. So is it a nice little perk? Yeah, but when did that become the responsibility? And at what point in time, if that that's the responsibility, regardless of income. No, what? Why do we? Why? Why do we stop there? I mean, is there any limit as to what schools or what the taxpayers should be required to do? Let's talk to John. John, you're on WTMJ. Uh, yeah, thanks. Okay, my thought here is that um, the taxpayer is paying for the lunches anyway. So what's the difference? I mean, the taxpayer is paying for everything. Even if they don't have any kids in school, they're still paying the, the school tax, you know. And so I just feel this way. Feed everybody. Feed all of the kids. You know, I mean, you know, uh, uh, no matter how much money you make it, that kid, uh, that parent could have some financial problems still. 
if you make a hundred thousand dollars. Well, why not feed? Why? Why does? Well, then, John, my John, my question would be: Then why do we stop with the kids? Why don't we just feed everybody? Why don't you know? Let, let's let's close down the the restaurants and stuff, and let's just have everybody be able to go in and and eat at the schools. How about that? Breakfast, lunch, dinner. Why do we stop at breakfast well, and lunch? Well, because it, you know that's 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 a school setting, and a kid shouldn't suffer because of that. Let the kids eat. You know, because, like I said before, uh, the taxpayer is paying for everything that that's, that we don't even use. We, we we don't we don't use that. We don't use uh, the school. We don't have any. My kids been out of school so many years. It ain't funny. But I still pay a uh, school tax. Mm-hmm. I still pay. You know, so I, I just don't see how you can you know determine that. Well, thanks for calling. I mean, look, I guess here, here's here here's how I look at this. I I don't I don't have a problem with paying property taxes that contribute to schools because I think we all we all have a we all have an interest in making sure that there is quality education. I object to the way some of the money gets spent in school districts. And secondly, from a selfish perspective, I'm here to tell you, if you live in an area, you own a home, even if you don't have kids that are going through a school system, you live in an area where there's a good school system, that's to your benefit because when you ultimately go to sell your house, you're, you're going to get more for it. That's just kind of the reality. But even with that said, I, I don't think that there's – an unlimited sort of, 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 of situation. I mean, I appreciate that we want to take care of kids who are, are needy. I, I get it. I understand all that. But does that mean that we have to say to, I don't know, the family where you've got the two doctors that are pulling in a quarter million dollars a year that, okay, people like John who are paying property taxes, who my guess is probably makes a lot less than like a quarter million dollars a year, why should he have to pay to feed the children of people who are much more much more well-off economically? Why should people end up having to do that? And, and is there no responsibility at all on the part of the parents for everybody out there who says, well, but it's for the kids. You don't want kids to go hungry. Well, I appreciate that. But at some point in time, don't you have to say to mom and dad, you, you have you bear some responsibility. And if you don't, then, then why are we just limiting this to breakfast and lunch? Why don't we just say, OK, well, we're going to provide dinners as well. And so don't even worry about having to feed your children. Moms, don't worry about having to cook dinner. What we're going to do is we're just going to allow, you know, everything, the taxpayers will pick this up. This isn't about taking care of the needy. That's not what this is about. This is whether or not it's the big society, the government, because it sounds good. We want to make sure everybody has access to food. So parents, you don't have to worry about it. We will take this over. Well, okay, if we're going to take over feeding your kids, what are we going to do next? Are we going to take over clothing your kids? Are we going to take over, I don't know, what your kids watch on television? Are we going to make sure, well, you know where this ends up going. If you follow me on Twitter, at Jeff Wagner 620 and another one of these postings, I'm not going to open up the phone lines to discuss it because it, it is kind of so self-evident. You will remember a couple of years ago, there Starbucks, which is, of course, the, the, the woke corporation who came under criticism because it, it happened in Philadelphia, and there were two guys who happened to be black who were sitting in this downtown Philadelphia Starbucks, and one wanted to use the restroom, I think, and they, they said, no, it's only for paying customers, and they weren't paying customers, or at least they weren't buying anything at the time. They were waiting for somebody who was going to come to have a meeting with them, and then one thing led to another, and the Starbucks employees ended up calling the cops, and this created this huge cause celeb, and Starbucks' response was, 
okay, here's what we're going to do. We want our facilities to be welcoming. We want our facilities to be open to the community. So what we're going to do is just we're it's it's an open door policy, kind of like, you know, Mandela Barnes and open borders. Come on in, hang out, do what you want to do. Um, you can use this. We, we don't care if you stay however long. You don't have to buy stuff. Use our bathrooms. Do whatever you want to do. And I think many of us said, huh. Wonder how that's going to work out. Well, we've seen part of the story is that now it's worked out to the extent that in in some of these cities around the country, Starbucks has had to close some of these these stores that they had opened because of of security problems because they had mentally ill people who were you know coming in and they were posing threats to the other customers and the employees, so they they had to, to close them. This I've got a, I've got a pictures of this. The New York Post had the story up over the weekend. Um, I, the pictures of what at the time was at least at one time was the largest Starbucks in New York City. Uh, the the headline and you got to see the pictures on this. Woke New York City Starbucks now a haven for junkies, drunks, and homeless. A Starbucks is dealing with more than just a constant flow of caffeine junkies looking to get their fix. The cafe at the corner of Astor Place and Lafayette Street regularly contends with drug users, mentally disturbed people, and homeless folks looking to take a nap, the New York Post witness. Starbucks got too woke too fast, said one of their regular customers. Now customers are too scared to go in because you've got a bunch of homeless people sleeping in there. They've got to be ready to kick people out and not give everybody a free cup of coffee. Um, in the past week, the Post saw homeless people nodding off, washing their hair in the public sink, and being transported to the hospital from the recently unionized Starbucks. Um, and among the recent eye-openers, one man brought his own box of Cinnamon Toast Crunch, a carton of milk, and some mini crumb cakes before pa- passing out face down on the table. Afterwards, he rolled joints as nearby paying customers tried to drink their lattes. A mentally disturbed man in a black trench coat talked to himself and screamed obscenities at the communal mirror near the bathrooms for 30 minutes. Um, there's a, then it goes on and on. EMTs, EMTs were called to assist a man who passed out on the steps, blocking an exit. He regained consciousness, entered the ambulance with the help of paramedics. And then you go through this, and they've got pictures of just, you know, people passed out, people like bringing their own food in to eat. And I guess the bottom line of all this is, gee, this isn't exactly working out quite like they expected. And now, you know, who could have known that the decision by Starbucks to go woke wouldn't work out very well? Who could have figured that out? Oh, yeah, everybody. If you want to see the pictures of this story, and it's just, it's kind of mind-blowing. It is sort of like, again, it's kind of like the open borders. Who in their right mind thinks that it's a a good idea to uh, allow just anybody who wants to stream into this this country with with no checks at all who thinks it's a good idea to allow anyone and everyone who wants to wander into a, a business any place of business and just squat for as long as they want who thinks that that's going to be a good idea from the perspective of the business and now you're seeing Starbucks it's not working out for them all right Time to hop on the bus. I, I've, I've said this before. It Here in Wisconsin, when we talk about the problems at the border, it, it's, it's sort of a, in many respects, it's kind of an intellectual enterprise because we, 
we don't have th- those problems. You don't have thousands and thousands of people entering the country illegally that, that end up here in Wisconsin on a daily basis. I've told this story before. Back when our radio network included, back when we were owned by Journal Communications, we had radio stations all across the country. There was a period of time when I was filling in for one of our hosts in Tucson, and I was doing his show and, in addition to doing mine. And I, I would talk to people from Tucson, and you, you got just a completely different perspective when you live on the border and you wake up and you look in your backyard and you've got 15 people that are there at 6 o'clock in the morning and a couple of them are peeing in your bushes and you, you don't know who these folks are. They're just people who've come in Ill- illegally. And they're going to subsequently you know, go into town and you— you know, your community is going to be responsible for figuring out how they're going to be housed, how they're going to be taken care of, how they're going to be fed, all the, these different things. It's much different when you're on the front lines than when, again, it's it's an academic sort of, of exercise. But that doesn't mean that it's not a problem. So the—I I love this. What's going on is the, the mayor in McAllen, Texas— and McAllen, Texas, is one of those right, you know, on the Texas-Mexico border. And they have been inundated over the course of the last couple years. The city of McAllen is getting thousands of immigrants a day, thousands of immigrants a day. And this has been going on. They say um, with record immigration in 2021, they managed over 130,000 new arrivals between February and and November. Um, McAllen sees about 100 crossings a day. And so this is a small community that has to figure out how they're going to absorb them. So one of, of course, the, the interesting things that has been going on is the McAllen mayor, with the blessing of the governor of Texas, they have been soliciting volunteers, and they have been putting people who come into this country illegally, instead of keeping them in McAllen, they have been putting them on buses and they have been transporting them up to Washington, D.C. and and New York City in particular. Now, we're not talking about thousands. We're not talking about tens of thousands. We're talking about, I don't know, you know, maybe, maybe a few hundred and what's happening is the mayor of New York and the mayor of Washington, D.C., they are going absolutely crazy over this notion that, you know, you're sending immigrants to these various cities. Well, what do you mean that you're expecting us to take care of it? You know, we we can't handle these. You know, we, we can't handle this. It, it's putting strains on our public resources, to which, you know, the folks in these border towns in Texas are saying— Sorry. I mean, look, this is what we're dealing with on a, on a regular basis. So, yeah, as long as people want to, they say they want to go to D.C. or they say they want to go to New York, they're going to end up there anyways. So we're going to put them on the bus. Our number is 855-616-1620, which is the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. If you want to, get on the bus. I mean, is there any reason why these border towns in in this case, Texas, should have to absorb hundreds of people coming in a day. And if ultimately the goal of these people who are coming into this country illegally is to get to New York City or get to Washington, D.C., is there anything wrong with, I don't know, these communities or the state of Texas facilitating that and saying, okay, Washington, D.C., New York City, all right, maybe it's time for you to share some of the burden that we have been sharing for the last couple years. Is there anything wrong with saying get on the bus? 855-616-1620. We discuss. 
855-616-1620, which is the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. I, I just... I, I love this whining that you're getting from the mayor of New York and you're getting from the mayor of D.C. because the number of border communities, particularly McAllen, Texas, which is sort of – that's one of the, the the spots where when people cross into this country illegally, they end up getting funneled to McAllen. McAllen's dealing with thousands and thousands of illegal immigrants in the course of every month. And so what they've started doing is they've started asking for volunteers with the blessing of the governor of Texas saying, hey, anybody want to go to New York City? Want to get on a bus and we'll ship you up there? Nobody's forced to do it, but, I mean, McAllen figure they, – they, they think Texas figures – well, if this is one where people want to go anyways, well, let's let's just move them along there. Nobody's being forced to do it. Same thing is true in Washington, D.C. And now the mayors of New York and Washington, D.C., who are getting just a fraction of the people who are pouring across the border illegally, they are just screaming bloody murder. Oh, this is terrible. It's straining our resources, et cetera, et cetera. And, you know, I mean, to which the mayor, McAllen, is saying— Okay, you know, look, I mean, if we can survive thousands of, of illegal aliens daily, well, you know, you, you can handle, you know, dozens or a couple hundred, you know, coming into your buses. Um, you know, we used to see a thousand something people a day. Now, you know, so you get a few hundred, you can deal with this. Um, 855-616-1620. Jeff, I love how the liberals in these big cities throughout the United States are so thoughtful and caring about immigrants until their cities, their cities receive them into their care. I agree with this. Why should border towns of Texas have the sole burden for caring for these illegal immigrants? It's a perfect example of the hypocrisy in our country. People feel good when they talk about letting these immigrants in without any legal method. However, they're not the ones who have to foot the bill for all of this. Um, yeah, which is what I, why I go back to you know, this this premise that it was really kind of eye-opening for me when I did this talk radio show. Out of, I was here, but I mean, I was doing it with a Tucson audience because you get a completely and totally different perspective when it's not just an intellectual discussion. When it's, Jeff, you know, this morning I counted. There were 15 people in my backyard. Three of them had guns. Three of them were peeing in the bushes. And, you know, I, I don't know whether they're criminals. I don't know whether it's what. You know, my husband can't go out and confront these people. We are trapped in there. And this happens, Jeff, three or four times a week, if not more. Well, that's a much different experience than when you just kind of read about it in the paper and stuff like that. So I have no problem at all with kind of a sharing the wealth sort of thing. A couple of our uh, texters are pointing out that New York City and Washington, D.C., they say they're sanctuary cities. I'm not sure if that's accurate or not, because that has a particular meaning. But at the same time, um, that's that's all well and good. Yeah, if if you're going to be a sanctuary city here, you know, that that's fine. We're going to establish this. Well, oh, okay, you, you take the good with the bad. And if the bad is, that means that, okay, we're now going to have a couple busloads of people coming in every couple days who have to I don't know, be fed and be clothed, and if they've got kids, they have to be educated and all those types of things. Yeah, I mean, that's. I think that's what being a sanctuary city is all uh, about. Um, Jeff, Madison declared itself a sanctuary city. When will immigrants arrive in Madison <laughs> via buses from the border? Well, I don't know, but that would be, again, an, an interesting sort of situation if, if all of a sudden— you know, Greg Abbott in Texas started saying, oh, the, the folks in Madison, you know, here, we'll, you know, they want to share the wealth here. We'll, we'll send a few buses of people who want to go on and root the Badgers on and stuff like that. All I'm saying is that it's, it's really easy to sit in New York City, you know, in your penthouse and you go, well, I just, I, 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 
you know, why, why do we even talk about not opening the borders? And But then, of course, but then say, well, but you're not going to send those people here because we're going to have to have to deal with them. It, look, and the bottom line is these border cities in Texas still have much, 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 much more of a share of, of the problem in dealing with this and having to come up with resources than any of these other cities do. It's just interesting to me that they squeal when places like Washington, D.C. and New York City are expected to absorb even a small burden from some of these failed border policies.